Multisensory Perception with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the Robohub podcast. Today we will talk about multisensory perception, essentially how we can teach robots to use vision, audio and touch for daily tasks and interactions. Jivko Sinapov is an assistant professor in the computer science department at Tufts University, who works at the intersection between robotics and artificial intelligence. His focus is on how robots can learn from and operate within human-inhabited environments using multisensory perception. Our interviewer, Xian Lu, caught up with Sinapov to discuss his career to date, several core principles of multisensory perception in robotics, as well as his experience of using robots to enhance children's education. Hi, Dr. Sinapov. Welcome to RoboHub. Could you introduce yourself to our audience first? Uh, hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having me here. So my name is Zhivko Sinapov, and I'm a new professor at Tufts University. Started about a couple of years ago. And my area of research is broadly defined in sort of artificial intelligence and robotics, the intersection between these two fields. Uh, sort of what the question that truly drives me is how can we, what is intelligence? How can we implement it in a physical robot? Uh, essentially, what is a mind and how can we construct one? It's a, it's a very deep question. I don't expect to solve it in my lifetime, uh, but I'm very happy that I get to actually participate in uh, at least getting piece, uh, bits, and, uh, bits and pieces of the solution for this question. Could you talk a little bit about your research path from your PhD study to your current position, your faculty position at Tufts University? Mm -hmm. And also maybe your general picture of your lab right now? Ah, yeah, good questions. Uh, so in my PhD, my focus was on enabling robots to perceive properties of objects and learn about objects through interaction with them. Uh, I specifically focused on models that use sort of tactile data, haptic data, auditory data. So as you imagine, as you interact with an object, you get all kinds of different sensory signals from it. And what can those tell you about the object? Uh, at the time, I basically took me my PhD, it took about seven years. Uh, it was a pretty, pretty long PhD uh, by some comparisons, but that's because I explored a variety of topics from learning two affordances. And then when I actually started, I did bioinformatics. Uh, once I focused on the robotics track, uh, things went pretty quickly. Uh, after my defending my PhD, I did a postdoc at UT Austin. Uh, I worked with Peter Stone and uh, Ray Mooney, who does language learning. Uh, there, we tried to connect some of my models of language understanding of uh, object understanding by robots with language. So how can, you, how can you now start to ground words in actual interaction with objects? And after my postdoc, the natural thing was, well, hey, let's apply for a faculty position. Uh, clearly, there, there's a, quite a lot of demand for computer science faculty now, just because industry is very, very aggressive in getting PhDs. Uh, faculty positions pay less, but you have a lot of freedom. You get to work with students. So here I am in my starting my third year at Tufts. Cool, cool, perfect. Imagine you use um, in your PhD work, you use the haptic. You don't just use the, the video data. You also use the haptics, audio data, to deal with the perception issues of the robots. So why would you like to use um, the haptics and audio data in your research? What's the benefit uh, can the robots get from this multimodal data? So that's a, that's a very good question. So when I first started my PhD, there was a heavy focus on visual perception uh, of objects. Uh, naturally speaking, the field of computer vision had been making a lot of advances over the past few decades. 
Uh, and we're roboticists to some degree. We kind of love computer vision people who do computer vision research because we can take their trained classifiers, their trained neural networks, deploy them on our robots. And all of a sudden, our robots now can detect objects in the world, uh, get labels for them, and so on. Uh, but it turns out that actually a lot of the properties of objects you cannot detect with vision alone. Uh, so, for example, to tell if an object is heavy or light, uh, if it's a container and it's, you, know, you cannot see what's inside of it, you have to actually lift the object. Uh, to tell extract properties about the surface texture of objects, you also have to touch them. Uh, the sounds the objects make can tell you a lot about the material properties, what's inside the objects, and so on. And because that, those areas were sort of very underexplored, I decided to focus on, uh, on these areas. Uh, there's a lot of connections to psychology. So in psychology, they call, uh, when people use behaviors to try to find something about an object, they call those exploratory behaviors. So those are behaviors not designed to change the state of the object or to move it from place to place, but simply to extract a property about the object. Uh, so Gibson, uh, both J.J. Gibson and E.J. Gibson, his wife actually, they both studied these, uh, these phenomena in humans and to some degree they inspired my research in robotics. I wanted to see, well, can a robot also use exploratory behaviors uh, to, find, to, to identify properties of objects, which presumably in many cases you cannot use with visual sensing alone. Uh, in, my, in our latest work, of course, we do use computer vision. Computer vision is still a very useful modality, uh, but we kind of try to get as many modalities as possible and let the robot figure out through its own interaction with the world which modality is useful for which task or which combination of modalities and a behavior is useful for a particular task. So if the robot has to identify the internal contents of, a, of an object, perhaps lifting it and shaking it to hear the sound is the right one. Of course, if it has to identify something like the color of the object, vision should be enough. Uh, but, we, but we try not to make any assumptions or hard code or handcraft any assumptions about what can be discovered with what modality. We want from the robot to discover this uh, through its own experience uh, with the world. You mentioned um, exploratory behavior of the robots from the psychology perspective, which is not for the robot to change the state of the object, but kind of to get to get access of the understanding of the environment or the proprietal environment. Um, could you take an example about what kind of exploratory behaviors robots will usually use in their daily task? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Uh, so for humans, psychologists have really actually studied this. They have a taxonomy of exploratory behaviors. Uh, so for example, for properties like the object weight, so here I have a cup in my hand, to get the object weight, maybe just holding it or just slightly lifting it uh, will kind of give me a perception of how heavy an object is. On the other hand, if I want the texture of the object, I may slide my finger across the object and process the tactile data and see whether well, there is a pattern here. It's not actually a smooth pattern. I can actually feel some edges. Mm -hmm. uh, so what I did in my research is I looked at the exploratory behaviors that psychologists had identified um, in humans and as well as other species, actually. Uh, and I basically implemented them uh, in a robot. Uh, so now the robot could grab an object, lift it, shake it, push it to the side, tap it with its finger. And every time the robot does an action like this, it would record all of its sensory modalities from vision to tactile to haptics to audio, uh, basically whatever I could come up with, whatever sensor I could throw on the robot. Uh, and then that information now can be used for the robot for a variety of tasks. It can be used for, for example, object recognition. Some of my early work was on object recognition using this kind of multi-sensory data. Uh, typically, the problem is thought of as a visual recognition problem, uh, but I wanted to see, can we recognize objects from, with sound? Can we recognize them with haptics, uh, with tactile signals? 
uh, can we actually integrate all of these modalities in our model of how to recognize these objects? Uh, so yeah, some other behaviors that are sort of exploratory would be, they could be very simple, pushing an object, lifting it, tapping it, uh, even dropping an object, the sound that it makes, which is quite indicative. In many cases, my exploratory behaviors were modeled after what uh, toddlers and young children do when you give them a new toy. So if you, if you, anyone who is a parent here who has maybe a niece or nephew, you know that uh, at a certain age of a child, if you give it a toy, the child will do everything. They'll taste it, they'll throw it, uh, they'll feel it, they'll squeeze it. And all of these, it may seem like child's play, but actually they're learning, they're learning how does the object behave as a result of my actions. Uh, and all of that knowledge later on is very useful for you when you actually have to identify a property of an object. Uh, in terms of a standard tasks that we use in robotics, uh, for example, we've used a, a, a language grounding task where presumably imagine if you have a robot in a hospital or in your office and you ask the robot, uh, hey, robot, please throw away the empty plastic uh, box. Uh, the robot now has to identify for all objects in its environment, you know, which one is an empty plastic box. Maybe some of those properties you can identify with a visual input, but maybe some of them you actually need to interact with the object. So this is sort of one object identification task that we've looked at uh, in the past. Of course, there are many others. Perfect. If we wanted to use a robot to do the active perceptions, like to get information about the haptics and the, like the touch produced audio, so we need for the we need the robot to explore to do the issues about control and planning first, right? Mm -hmm. Since it's unlike the vision, we just need a camera and fix it on the ground or attached on the robot body. And then we could get the information like passively. For the ah, okay. and the audio, we need the robot to do the action first. And then mm -hmm. in, that, in that environment, we need to control the robot's motion and to plan, to plan their actions in the next steps. So how do you think about the control and the planning issues in the active perception? There are actually a lot of issues there because object exploration data is uh, it's expensive. You have to have given object to a yeah. robot, have the robot explore the object and give another object. And I remember some of my just collecting a data set could take a couple of weeks, uh, especially if you don't, if this procedure is not fully, fully automated. Mm -hmm. uh, but to some in, in some sense, that information is indeed required. Uh, if you want to do some kind of multi-model, multi-sensory object learning. Uh, now we have focused, we have developed some algorithms that enable the robot, well, how do I effectively apply my behaviors? And again, here there's some inspiration from uh, human psychology. Uh, so toddlers and infants and young children, they explore more or less randomly. They try every action and every object to see how it behaves. But as we grow into adults, uh, we kind of start to associate particular actions with particular properties. Uh, and we are much more targeted at how we apply those exploratory behaviors. So if I give you a new object and you have to decide if it's uh, full or empty, if it's a cup, uh, you can very easily either look at it, if that's not sufficient, then lift it, and you can make, come to that decision. You don't have to perform all of your actions uh, on, on the object. Uh, and so for planning-wise, we've developed some methods that sort of use information theory to figure out where if I'm trying to identify something about the object, what is the next most informative action I can do? Uh, we have done work where we actually try to learn policies for identifying uh, linguistic descriptors that may be attached to the object. So if I need to find out, is this object soft? Uh, what, what behaviors do I perform for a particular object and a particular property that I need to identify uh, for it? Uh, it, is still, it is still 
much more difficult than simply getting a visual data set, training on your own, uh, training a CNN on a visual data set because the data is more expensive to gather. Uh, but most most recently, I guess one thing that I'm really excited about is that you mentioned that yeah, typically we can just put a camera on the robot. We can then use a pre-trained neural network to recognize objects. Uh, but we can do the same thing with tactile sensors or haptic sensors, mostly because different robots have different bodies. Uh, so if my robot, for example, it has a particular action, maybe it learns a haptic classification model of an object. Now that model is very much unique to my particular robot and my particular behavior that the robot does. I cannot just deploy it to my buddy's lab uh, halfway across the country where the robot is different, has maybe different number of tactile sensors, different number of haptic sensors. So how do we transfer this knowledge from one robot to another? Uh, my graduate student, Gian Tatia, has most recently started to look in this problem and he's actually developed some method where if one robot explores a lot of objects and the second robot explores only a few objects, we can still build some kind of an alignment or a projection from one robot's feature space to the other so that the second robot that comes along doesn't have to do all the object exploration that the first robot did and can use the first robot's exploration data when it has to solve its own problems uh, related to operating in, uh, in our human environments. So that work I'm really excited about because it has the potential, it has the potential to essentially do for what computer vision uh, has done, what big data sets have done for computer vision and being able to apply them in robotics, uh, but for other modalities, including the tactile modality, the haptic modality, the auditory modality, modalities that are very much contingent on the robot's own body and morphology, as opposed to visual modalities, which generally speaking, we mostly use the same type of cameras uh, across, across a variety of robots. So it's more like, um, i a little bit confused about that. It's like you're talking about, it's like, use the first robot to explore the, the object and then you transfer the transfer the data and transfer the like the kind of what's the first robot learned to the second robot is that what mm -hmm. you mean uh yes in some sense yes exactly uh the idea is we want to do this without having to have the second robot spend exhaustive object exploration which again okay. takes okay. weeks uh now with humans of course we that's what we do when we're toddlers. So toddlers play for years and years, and they learn all these models of you know, how do objects move, how do they feel like, how do they sound like. Uh, so humans, we have that data, we have that time to get that data, but with robots, of course, if you wanna deploy an application quickly, uh, we want to be able to learn those properties quickly as well. Uh, the main idea behind these methods that we've developed is that if the two robots have a shared set of objects that both have explored, we can use that shared set to build a sort of a calibration between the two different you know, types of haptic sensors, for example. And then once we have that calibration, that alignment uh, between their feature spaces, now the second robot can make use of a lot of data that perhaps the first robot has explored in the past. Uh, so that the second robot now can basically be bootstrapped with that knowledge so that it doesn't have to start everything from scratch. Very interesting. Can you introduce your framework about the uplink task of human art robots a little bit? Since I know uh, you use that robot to create a data set, it's a public data set, that researchers can use the, for their own multimodal perception research. I was curious about what's the, especially it's like what's the biggest challenge when using this uplink task of human robots to collect the data and What's the biggest takeaway you can get from this? Mm -hmm. um, I guess it must be a like long period research. Uh, so <laughs> yes, yeah. so in most of my research, I've used robots that have, let's say, one or two arms, and they can manipulate objects uh, on a table. Uh, 
Uh, and typically the way we collect these data sets, we would leave an object on the table, have the robot perform a variety of behaviors on it. Uh, sometimes those behaviors could be completely hard-coded as joint space trajectories, or sometimes they're actually learned by demonstration, or perhaps we use motion planning to execute them. Uh, and as the robot executes those behaviors on the object, it would record the raw sensory data from all of its available sensors. We don't, we don't know in advance which sensor is useful for what, uh, so we basically record everything. Uh, and we do this process over you know, some amount of time. You would switch the object around, now have the robot perform uh, the set of behaviors on a new object. And of course, we need more than one data point per object. So of course, we would you know, repeat the objects and have the robot explore them multiple times. Uh, and initially in my research, this procedure was very much a human had to be involved there. A human had to put the object in specific places, press the record button, have the robot execute it. Uh, but over gradually, we've made this procedure a lot more autonomous uh, to the point where when I was a postdoc at UT Austin, we had a robot that can drive around in our office environment, find an object on a table, explore it, collect some data, and then use that data to solve uh, some common problems such as recognizing objects or identifying which language, which words apply to objects and so forth. So there's definitely been this shift towards sort of more manual data set collection, which is of course very expensive if humans have to be involved to making it more automated. Uh, currently, we're at a point where we basically, so you may have seen, of course, uh, companies like Google, they have well, almost like a robot swarm of robot arms exploring objects, learning how to grasp. Uh, I don't have 10 robots. I only have two robots, but that's actually quite good for, for what I have right now. They can, we can put an object on the table, have the robot explore it. And then at some point, the robot has to tell me, okay, now give me a new object. I've already learned everything about this object. Uh, so the idea is to have this kind of long-term experiment where uh, over the course of a year, perhaps, uh, just like a baby over the course of a year explores a lot of objects, we want the robot to do the same. So that's the point where we have gotten to right now. Uh, the data sets themselves, so we have a number of data sets that are uh, public, publicly available from my graduate research to my postdoc research. Uh, and in those data sets, genuinely, they contain uh, uh, raw sensory data collected as the robot explores a variety of objects. I think in the biggest data set, we have 100 objects. Each of them was explored five different times uh, with many sensory, all the sensory modalities recorded for each one. Uh, and we've used this data set to model things like object recognition, uh, as well as language learning. So how do you connect language? So there's the, the language grounding problem is, how do you connect words like red, soft, hard, cup, bottle, to actual perceptions uh, of the robot as it manipulates objects. Uh, so we also have data sets, uh, annotations that uh, basically match these, um, they describe the objects based on words that humans would use to apply. Very cool, very cool. Okay, till now we have, we're all talking about your research, especially your research focusing on the, the multimodal perception in robots. Then probably we're gonna shift our topic a little bit. Since we know you're the winner of the Verizon 5G 100K ad tag challenge competition the earlier this year, which is a big accomplishment. So we're curious, what's your insight about combining robots with your education, especially your education for your undergraduate students, graduate students, or even the PhD students in your lab? Mm -hmm. Ah, thanks, that's a very good question. Uh, so in addition to the research on multi-sensory perception and learning about objects, I also do some research in robotics education, essentially. How do kids learn robotics more effectively? Uh, it's a big problem because basically the next generation of students, uh, so we're looking at basically K-12 through students, uh, they'll have to be a lot more tech-savvy than we were when we were their age. 
there will be a lot of jobs in the future where people will be working with robots uh, in collaborative environments, whether it's a factory floor or a hospital. Uh, and in those cases, those the people who work in those jobs, they'll they may not be technological experts in a sense the same way we are, but they still have to have an understanding of in general how do robots work. Uh, you know, do I do do I have a what I think about the robot uh, is thinking about is that true or not? So have an accurate mental model of what may be going on inside the robot. Uh, and we believe robotics in general is a very uh, sort of a fun domain to actually introduce kids to both programming and human-robot interaction scenarios. Uh, uh, in, the, in the Verizon Ed Tech uh, Challenge that we won uh, last year, uh, basically what we're doing there is we're using augmented reality uh, to reveal the world of the robot to the human student. So this way, uh, for example, imagine a scenario you're trying to program your robot. A lot of the tasks that typically we use in those settings are sort of maze navigation, uh, solving a maze or line following. But sometimes, oftentimes, the robot has its own sensors, but oftentimes those sensors may fail or they may not necessarily work the way the student expects them to work. Uh, so what we develop is a framework where a student can basically pull out their phone or, their, or a tablet that we provide, uh, put the tablet over the robot, and all of a sudden you can visualize all the sensory data that the robot is currently gathering about the environment. So you can see its sonar reading, you can perhaps see it's, uh, the, the image that it's detecting, uh, and we can even go beyond just sensory data. We can go to what we call cognitive data. So, for example, robots oftentimes make motion plans. Uh, and if you just see a robot driving around in a hallway, uh, we generally don't have a good mental model of, you know, how does the robot navigation work? Or at least the average person wouldn't, unless you actually work on those algorithms. Uh, but the future path of the robot is something that we can project in augmented reality just the same. Uh, so we can actually see, you know, if a human is working with a robot, and we can see the path, the human can see the path that the robot is planning to take. For example, does that affect, does it enhance the human-robot collaboration? Uh, so we're doing some studies in that area as well. And in the context of education, uh, we have generally found that the kids that we worked with when we ran the robotics workshops, uh, they really did use the app to debug their robot's behavior. They would basically take the robot, place it in different contexts, observe, oh, here in this context, these are the readings that it gets from its sensors, so let me adjust my program accordingly. Uh, for example, they were using color sensors, uh, but sometimes the color sensors of those uh, EV3 robots, sometimes they fail. Sometimes it may be over an orange color, but it says it's red. Uh, so it's actually very, if you're trying to debug this just with code, you have to constantly look at the screen, look at output values. Uh, on the other hand, if you try to debug it with augmented reality, it becomes a lot easier. Uh, so now we're doing some subsequent follow-up studies to actually get quantitative data about, you know, what is the benefit of having the augmented reality interface in the context of learning, uh, learning robotics. Um, and this work is funded by, yes, the Verizon EdTech Challenge that we won last year. Very cool. It's more like um, you put the students into the position of the robots and to view the world from the robot's eyes, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. It's the, Give the students the more... Sorry, go ahead. No. Uh, yes, exactly. We basically want to create sort of a transparency between the mm -hmm. robot's view of the world and the student's view of the world and the robot. Uh, so if the student is aware of what is the robot sensing, what is it planning to do, uh, we, we found that it helps them actually debug the robot's behavior better. Uh, we've even done things like virtual reality, where you can actually become the robot. Uh, some very interesting things happen there is where once you become the robot in virtual reality, 
uh, because the robot is very small, you start feeling very small. Uh, and then maybe if you spend 10, 15, 20 minutes in that uh, being the robot, uh, then when you take the, head, the headset off, all of a sudden you feel really big, you feel like a giant. Uh, so uh, we believe that sort of basically exposing this kind of data to the human that robots are going to be working with or to a student that was trying to learn robotics, uh, it almost creates like a sense of empathy with the robot. So if the robot is failing, at least you can see why it fails. You can see that, oh, the robot is failing to see this object. Uh, the robot does not see this obstacle, so it's trying to plan through it. So understanding why the robot fails, it almost creates kind of an empathy relationship between the human and the robot. Versus if you don't understand why it fails and the robot is just doing something very dumb, uh, then perhaps that empathy is uh, not, as, uh, not as prominent in those situations. Great, perfect. Okay, so the last but not least question, what advice would you like to give to the students who desire to work in this area? Ah, who want to work in robotics and AI in general. Uh, the advice is to start early. Uh, so personally, for me, the, the big inspiration for when I was a kid uh, was robots like C-3PO, R2-D2 uh, from Star Wars, even Commander Data from Star Trek. I'm one of those rare people that likes both. Uh, and to me, that's what really inspired me to pursue uh, the, the deeper question of, you know, how can we make robots intelligent? Uh, if you are a student in this field, so robotics is increasingly entering the high school, the K through 12 uh, environment, uh, find workshops, start robotics clubs, join Lego competitions. Uh, at that age, this is what this is the way the best way to get started. Uh, and if you're an undergraduate student uh, in a university, it's never too early to start getting involved in research. Uh, one of the advantages of robotics is that there are all kinds of different tasks to be completed from soldering to data collection to building them. Uh, so even if you're a first year student, you can get involved. I have perhaps, I think five to six uh, first year students right now in my lab. Uh, I've even had high school students uh, in the past over the summer who just joined as volunteers over the summer. There's always something they can do. No matter you always, no, no matter how many classes you've taken, what your programming background is, there usually is something, something you can do to help someone doing research in the lab. Uh, and as you get, in, as you get more and more involved, uh, by the time students are seniors or last year in college, uh, I've noticed that if they started their first year, they are capable of doing their own experiments, leading their own research directions, writing their own papers. Uh, which is just a great feeling to see somebody because when I was a senior in college, I was not there. I did not start research early enough. So my advice is start early. Uh, it's fun. Uh, it's rewarding. And ultimately, you, perhaps you'll get to change the world. Thanks. Thanks for the talk. And I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. And that's it for today. As always, check out robohop.org forward slash podcast for more episodes and loads more robot and tech-related content as well. And while you're there, why not find out more about our Patreon campaign? As our podcast is entirely run by volunteers who give their time and expertise freely, we really rely on support from our listeners to help us keep going. And just a few dollars a month, essentially the same price as a cup of coffee, can really help the team. So if you enjoy our content, check out how you could support us at robohop.org forward slash podcast. And we'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Multisensory Perception with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. <laughs>